should be today. I know three things from being around the Lord long enough. I know we need the church. I know we need the people of God. I need you. You need me. I'm glad we're here together. A few of us have had a hard week, a few hard days, and this is right where we should be, around the people of God. The other thing we need to do is, is pray. We need God's help, and we seek him through prayer. The other thing we need is God's word. And you can find all of these three, three, all of these three things here, and we thank the Lord, and we bless the Lord for that. I'm thankful for that song, Bless the Lord. And that's something we're going to talk about this morning. Would you pray with me this morning as we calibrate our minds to God and his word? Father, thank you for this opportunity to gather with your people. We are here because of Christ. He is the one. You are the one to receive all glory. And we thank you for this church. Thank you for what is happening here. I just pray that everyone here would be encouraged and lifted up. And Father, uh, wounds would be healed and you would give strength. And Father, if there's a lack of faith or a weak faith, I pray that you would strengthen even that today through the teaching of your word. Bring all glory and honor unto yourself. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we're starting a new book series today. If you remember, we went through gospel, what do you call it? Summer Gospel Nuggets. I forgot the title. And we finished that this past week. If you were here last Sunday, we had quite the adventurous Sunday. We had a lot of illustrations, and it was quite a wild ride, but it was a good time. And so this, this Sunday, we're going to start a new book study through the book of Ephesians. And as Pastor Mel told you, we're going to call it Lifestyles of the Rich and Godly. Who remembers that show from like the 80s? Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Who remembers that? Yeah, one person. Okay, a few of us. Right? They used to show you all the fancy houses and villas and properties and show you everybody that's rich so you felt bad. It was great. Um, I don't know when that show went off, but I remember the guy's accent. It's like implanted in my mind. I'm not going to use that accent today. But we decided to go with this. I know it's a little, it's a little cutesy, I guess, but um, it does work with the book of Ephesians. It talks a lot about riches. Obviously, it talks about, a lot about godliness, and it talks about the lifestyles that would line up with people who have both of those things. So we're going to look at the book of Ephesians. And I know we talked about maybe doing Second Peter, but this is just where the Spirit led us. We're going to go through the book of Ephesians, and we're going to go at whatever pace we need to go. Okay, We're not going to try to finish this before Christmas or anything. We're going to go as we need to go, and hopefully it'll be a blessing to everyone here. So Lifestyles of the Rich and Godly. The title of our lesson today, though, from Ephesians 1, 1 to 10, is going to be called Heirs of Life. Heirs of Life. I want you to think right now, what was one of the best presents you ever received? Whether it's birthday or Christmas or just some random gift, what was one of the best presents you ever received? Hopefully, most of us would say our salvation, right? That's the best present we ever received, our salvation from God. But if you would ask me, what is the greatest gift I ever received on the earth? I'd have to probably say my wife. And this, this is when you go, aw, because that's what I was going for. My wife is the best gift I ever received. And I, the reason I call her a gift is because if you've, if you've ever been through that process of getting engaged and getting married, um, I don't know if you have to do it this way, but I decided when I was dating Janine that I was going to do the proper thing and ask her father for her hand, right? I just felt like I was going to be old school that way and do it the proper way. And her dad is a nice enough guy. We, we got off on a really good foot, which I hadn't done with a lot of other dads in the past. So that was a good, <laughs> that was a really good sign. Um, but after we had been dating for, you know, a long, long time, like a month, I decided to talk to, to tell her dad that I wanted to meet with him. And everybody kind of knew where we were trending. We had talked about marriage and things like that. So he knew why I wanted to meet with him. But I said, can, I, can we set up a time that I can meet with you? And he said, yes. And he was a teacher. So I met him at his classroom after school one time. And 
And I went over to his classroom and I sat down with him. And I'm not a really nervous guy by nature. I'm kind of confident and outgoing, but I was nervous. I was nervous about this process, about sitting before this guy, Mr. Steve Thurman, and saying, can I have your daughter's hand in marriage? Can you give me your daughter? That was just a nerve-wracking thing. I remember being very nervous about this. So I went in to talk about this, talk to this guy, and I remember not knowing how to bring the question up. Even though he knew why I was there, I definitely knew why I was there. I found it hard to actually get to the question. So we started talking about random things. Weather, and how's this class going, sports, and anything and under the sun. And after a while, I realized we'd been going for like an hour and a half. And I hadn't even got to the point of the, of the, of the meeting. So, and I know Janine knew this meeting was going on, and she was getting nervous, thinking this is not going well. But I did one of those things after you've been in conversation for a while, and there's some reason that you want to talk to the person. I went like this. I went, anyways, uh, the reason I'm here is, is I have a question for you. And he knew what it was coming. But I said, I'd, I'd like to ask for your blessing, for your hand, uh, for your daughter's hand in marriage. And he said something like, you know, Todd, I think you're a good guy, and my, uh, my daughter's dated a few losers in the past, so I think you're the best we're going to get. And I was thrilled. That's exactly what I wanted to hear. So he gave me his blessing, and uh, he said, yes, you can marry my daughter. And if you remember the wedding process, when you go to the ceremony, right, the dad actually gives away the daughter. Right? You stand at the altar, and, and the dad walks the daughter up and actually hands the daughter over to you. And it's basically giving you his daughter. And he, she, he's gonna, she's going to be yours from now on. She was my daughter, but now she's your wife. And really, that's why I call Janine a gift, is because someone gave her to me. And uh, she's been the best gift I've ever received by a lot. And uh, I, hope you, I hope everyone who's been through that process can say the same about their spouse. But we're going to look at blessings today. We're going to look at a bunch of gifts that we get from God. And I want you to join me in Ephesians 1 verses 1 to 10. This is a really powerful opening to this book. Just like 1 Peter was, if you remember 1 Peter, TGD just read it. It's a really powerful opening paragraph. And that's really what we have in Ephesians 2. And I want you to listen to the first 10 verses and then we'll just walk our way through it. Listen to what Paul says. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And we're going to call today's lesson, as I mentioned, heirs of life, heirs of life. And you could also insert and spiritual blessings there because we get a lot of blessings from, from God. And we're going to find that out today. We have three goals today. Our number one goal is this, for God to receive all the glory from our spiritual life and blessings. Because as you find it right there, it's plainly obvious. God is to receive all the glory for our life and spiritual blessings. And we're going to seek to give him that glory today. Goal number two is to be sure of our faith in Christ. 
and convinced that we are heirs of his riches. And that has to be known. That has to be sure in our lives. That's nothing we can leave up to chance. So we're going to make that our second goal. And our third goal is this, to be inspired by God's enormous love for us so that he gets all of our love in return. Because God has unleashed his love upon us and he desires that we love him in return. So those are our three goals today we hope to get to. As we start a new book here, as you start any book, you sort of have to give a little bit of background so we understand, you know, who's talking, where are we coming from, what's some of the context here. And I'm going to give you a little bit of that right now, a little bit of background. I'm going to do it very brief. I'm not going to linger here too long. The Apostle Paul doesn't give us a lot, but I just want to make sure that we understand who we're, who we're dealing with here. So let's start with the author. The author, as wouldn't surprise you, is the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul wrote a lot of the New Testament. Most of the epistles are written by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. And the Apostle Paul, if you remember his story, he used to be a guy whose name was Saul, Saul of Tarsus. And Saul of Tarsus was a bad dude. He was. He was a bad guy. He was a Pharisee. He was also a persecutor of the Church of Christ. And he was somebody who was trying to lock up Christians to get them out of the way. He thought they were a problem. Am I double echoing here? Okay. And so Paul was not really a great guy. He's not really a guy you'd want to be around if you were a Christian because he was one of those guys that were trying to get all the Christians out of the way. He thought they were an enormous problem. But something happened to Paul. Paul, on the road to Damascus, met the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, powerfully met the Lord Jesus Christ. He saw a light from heaven. He heard a voice. And the voice said, Saul, Saul, who are you persecuting? And he said, Lord, is it you? And he met Jesus. He met Jesus that day. And from that point on, Paul became someone different, someone uniquely different. And from that moment on, God set him apart to be an apostle. And if you know any, uh, any idea about what the apostles were, apostles were men that were set apart from God to do special, special things, to spread the name of Jesus far and wide. They were given supernatural power from God to heal people, things like that. And Paul was one of these apostles. He was specially given this task by God. So Obviously, Paul knew the unmerited grace of God, didn't he? He wasn't a good guy from nature. He was a bad guy. He was a guy that was hurting God and hurting his people. So he knew what it was like to receive salvation as a gift. He also knew what it was like, he said this in verse 1, to receive his apostleship as a gift from God. He says, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So Paul was given salvation. He was given apostleship. From God, and Paul never would have claimed that he earned that on his own. He was given to it as a present from God. And he was specially set apart for the work of God to spread the name of Jesus far and wide amongst the nations. And it looks like Paul is probably writing this letter from a, a prison cell in Rome. Paul got in hot water a lot with the people, with the magistrates, because he simply wouldn't stop telling people about Jesus. Because that was his apostleship, right? That's the task that God had given him. Magnify and spread the name of Jesus as far as you can. So Paul did. And Paul got in trouble with a lot of people who didn't want to hear about the name of Jesus. And they arrested him and beat him and put him in these dungeons and said to Paul, Paul, if you will just stop telling people about Jesus, we'll stop arresting you. Did he stop? No. So Paul found himself in jail quite a bit. And so here he is in a, in a prison cell in Rome because he simply wouldn't stop telling people about Jesus. And the ironic thing is Paul may have been as productive in jail as he was out of jail because he wrote a lot of these letters from jail that we now have before us that have blessed countless generations. And we're hopefully going to be blessed by the book of Ephesians. And we have 
besides the Spirit of God, of course, we have Paul to thank for that. That Paul took that time, took that opportunity to, to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And Paul just continued to move the ball down the field as often as he could. So that's the author of Ephesians. The author is the Apostle Paul. Who is he writing to? Well, he's writing to a church. He's writing to believers in the church in Ephesus. And Ephesus was a very large Greek city. It was a very prominent city. So this would have been a good-sized church probably in a very important, prominent city. This town Ephesus was flourishing under Roman Empire. Uh, it was economically strong. It was a really strong, big town. And Ephesus was also one of the churches, if you read through the book of Revelation, it's one of the seven churches John writes to. And so this church had a long tenure, had a long, strong tenure of being in Christ, walking with Christ. And Paul recognizes that here in the first chapter. He recognizes that this is a strong church. And he calls them faithful saints, faithful believers to Jesus. And I think many of these people were Gentiles, which means they weren't Jews by nature. Gentile just means non-Jew. And so a lot of them were Gentiles, but there also were Jews in the mix as well. So we sort of had this church of Jews and Gentiles, but both under the banner of Jesus Christ. And we know that because Paul talks about unity later on, about how the Gentiles and the Jews should be unified together under one God, one faith, one baptism, one Lord. And they were all unified under Jesus Christ. And the Ephesians report was strong. I hope that our church would have a strong report in this culture that we live in. That Wyoming Valley Church, whatever you know about Wyoming Valley Church, are good things. They're loving people. They're kind. They're godly. They love the Lord. You could say all of those things about the Ephesians. And Paul does. So that's who the author is. That's who he's writing to. A little bit of introduction. Paul, in verse 2, says this. He says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul did that a lot when he started a letter. He invoked the grace and peace of God so that the people he was writing to would have the power, would have the opportunity to grow and mature even further than they had up to that point. And most of these people are really good, strong Christians. But Paul is desiring that they mature even greater than they were. So he says, grace and peace be unto you. Because as most of us will say, even if we're saved, we need the grace and peace of God, don't we? We need it today, don't we? I need it tomorrow if God wakes me up, don't I? And so did the Ephesians. So that's a brief introduction into Ephesians. There's a lot more we could say, but Paul doesn't say a lot. He gets right into the content. So we're going to do that as well. Verses 3 to 10 is where we're going to spend most of our time today. And I mentioned our three goals, but I want to start here. I want to start by saying this today. What do we gain from this opening paragraph? What do we gain from this opening powerful paragraph, verses 3 to 10 of Ephesians? I need to say this today, that what precedes, what Paul is going to talk about today are really strong promises and blessings. That he's basically saying to the Ephesians, I want you to know these things. I want you to believe these things. I want you to trust in these things. But remember what we said about the Ephesians. They were Christians. They had faith in Jesus. And you know what else they had? Faithfulness to Jesus. And Paul recognizes that right at the beginning, saying, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. And I think we need to be careful today just vaulting ourselves into the passage, thinking we're the primary audience if we don't look anything like the Ephesians. Because the Ephesians had faith in Christ, then the Ephesians were faithful to Christ. And Paul knew that, and therefore he wrote what he wrote based on the report of the Ephesians. So I think if we look at this and go, yeah, yeah, I don't know if I'm a Christian, but I'm glad these promises are given to me. No, that's not why they're there. 
And if we're not faithful to Jesus Christ, I don't think we can say that these promises are for us either. These promises were given to people who were walking with the Lord, who loved the Lord, who had been tested and proven their faith in Jesus Christ. But if we do have faith in Christ, and if we are seeking to be faithful to the Lord, then Paul wants us to know that these promises, these blessings are for us as well. And I hope this would encourage you today. But let's get into it today. The first thing we're going to look at is this, that God is to receive all the glory in our lives for all that is good. And we're going to seek to give that to him today. Look at what it says in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just like in the book of Genesis, who wants to shout this out? Who knows the first four words of the Bible? First four words of the Bible, what are they? Go ahead, Dolores. What's the word right after that? God. In the beginning, God. Right? Isn't that how the book, the Bible starts? In the beginning, God. It seeks to set our perspective properly. Was I in the beginning? No. Were you in the beginning? No. Was God in the beginning? Yes. In the beginning, God. He was before the beginning. He was there at the beginning. Isn't that a wild thing to know? And Paul is basically saying that to us as well. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Paul, again, is trying to calibrate our minds to who is first. Who is best? Who is the sole reason that all good things exist? It's God, isn't it? Isn't God the reason? We know this, right? Certainly we didn't create God. I didn't create God. I didn't create myself. I didn't even seek out God, according to Scripture. God is the one who gave me everything that I have. Everything good that I have comes from God. God created us. God loved us. God redeemed us by his own plan, through his own Son, by his own Holy Spirit, and for his own glory. You could say this, that God's glory is the highest purpose anyone could ever live for, including God himself. And I want you to think about this for a moment. What's the highest thing out there? What's the best thing? What's the thing that if you were to live for it would be the highest, best purpose imaginable? God's glory. Because there's nothing higher. And even God himself strives after the best thing imaginable. And it might sound like selfishness, like, God, you're only out for your own glory. That's kind of selfish. No, it's not. That's what you want God to strive after because there's nothing higher. My happiness, my joy, my security is not as high as the glory of God. It's not. And God strives after his glory because there's nothing higher. And he's going to strive after what is the best, what is the highest, what is the best purpose that anyone could strive after. And that's the glory of God. And we can see this laced through Scripture that God's glory is the reason he does everything. And if you know anything about God, you're thankful for that. Because that's the reason you and I have salvation today. Because I was worthy of it? No. Because I was so lovable? No. Because God sought his own glory. And because he sought his own glory, he saved me. He redeemed you. And I'm thankful for that. And that's the thing we need to understand from the first thing in Ephesians here is, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Based purely upon who God is, God is to be blessed more than man is to be blessed. Do you believe that? 
Do you want that? Do you want God to be blessed more than you want yourself to be blessed? Because that's kind of what Paul is saying. Blessed be God. He's going to show us some wonderful promises we have from God in Christ, but he says at the first thing, blessed be God. Is that something we want? Do we want God blessed more than anyone else, more than myself? If one is to receive the blessing, it is our great God for all his greatness, all his holiness, and all his splendor. Why? Because God is the end-all, be-all. He is. He's the end-all, be-all. I am a created being. You are a created being. We are not the end-all, be-all. God is. To him be the glory forever and ever. And even Jesus, when he taught us how to pray, he said, When you pray, say this, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus is teaching us again. Paul is teaching us again. It's about God. It's about God. This whole letter, this whole life, life that he has given us is about God. God is to be blessed for all he has done through Jesus Christ. Amen? We have a lot that we've been given from God through Jesus. And the reasons to bless God are endless. I think that's why we have an eternity. I think it's going to take that long to bless our God. Because the reasons are endless. If you tried to list the blessings and the reasons to bless God, you'd eventually have to give up. Because they're endless. And I want you to consider today, what do we have because of God through Jesus? What do you have today because of God's love through Jesus? Can you count them? Can you name them? Can you get to the end of that list? I bet you can't. Without God's goodness, there is nothing else good in existence. Without God's goodness, there is nothing else good in existence. His pure goodness and love is the sole reason we know anything good and have tasted of any love at all. Because God is good and God is love. Love and goodness didn't start on their own. They didn't exist as their own entity. They didn't start with man. God and goodness and love all started at the same time with God. God started love. God started goodness. And anything that we know about goodness and love comes from God. So if you and I today want to live for good, pure, godly things, who is that a credit to? It's a credit to God. If we think love is a terrific way to live, who gets the credit for that? God. Because love started with God. I didn't come up with love. Man didn't invent love. And then God kind of piggybacked onto that. No. God started love. And it says in 1 John 4, 19, a book we looked at, we love because he first loved us, right? I can love, I want to love, but it's all because he loved me first. So love began with God and so did everything righteous. Everything righteous. Our upbringings may have been wrong. Our perspectives might be off. I am not the author of righteousness. I am not the person with all the wisdom. God is. And this proves that we need to understand righteousness not from my perspective, not from my upbringing, not from the way I see the world. I could be wrong. I need to understand righteousness purely from God. What God calls righteousness, what God calls goodness, what God calls love, I need to understand those things from God. And I need to put my whims and my perspectives to the side and say, God, whatever you call righteous, whatever you call goodness, I'm going to learn that and I'm going to seek after that. So unless we, unless we understand that God is the sole reason for our existence, for our redemption, for our inheritance, and our hope, we cannot and we will not see properly in this life. We won't. 
If we don't see God is the best, God is the first, God is the sole reason we have anything good, everything we see will be wrong. We will walk in darkness, as we talked about last week. And maybe we'll consider that we're the end-all, be-all. That maybe God is here for us. Maybe God is my butler. Maybe God is my servant. Maybe the entire thing is upside down because maybe I'm the end-all, be-all. It's not what Paul says. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We must see and believe that God is our designer. God is our provider. God is our protector. God is our instructor, our father, our moral compass, and our very life. Do you believe that today? That without God, we have nothing and can do nothing and have zero purpose in this life without God? We owe it all to God, guys. We all owe it all to God. Every single breath is owed to God. Every single action is owed to God. Every single thought and good praise is owed to God. And Paul wants that clear in our mind because he says, by seeing God correctly, you will see everything else correctly. If you see this one thing, if you will recognize this one thing, that God is the end-all, be-all, that he is, his glory is why everything exists, then you will see everything else clearly. C.S. Lewis said it this way. You guys know C.S. Lewis, right? He said this. He says, I believe in Christ like I believe in the sun, not because I can see it, but by it I can see everything else. Isn't that a good quote? I believe in Christ like I believe in the sun, not because I can see it, but by it I can see everything else. And if you will see God properly, you will see yourself properly. You will see this world properly. You will see the other side in heaven properly. And Paul tells us that we have received every spiritual blessing in Christ. Every spiritual blessing in Christ. Nothing is withheld from those whom God loves. You guys ever heard someone say to you when you come to their house, make yourselves at home? Make yourselves at home. You know, my house is your house. Make yourselves at home. I've, I've always wondered to what length I could actually take that. You know, like if I climbed in their bed and popped open a bag of chips, turned on Netflix, and like I wondered if I could push that envelope a little. I never actually did. But maybe you've heard someone say that, right? Make yourselves at home. I think in a manner of speaking, God's saying that to us. If you're my children, it's all yours. Everything that's mine is yours. Everything that is good, I've given to you. I want you to have it. I want you to have the confidence of it. And we owe it all to God. We owe it all to God. And God is going to get a tremendous amount of glory by two things. By this world having people that love God and desire holiness. God is glorified by that. When we say, I want to live for God. I want to represent God to this world. God is glorified by this. And he's also glorified by when we don't pat ourselves on the back for it and say, it's all to him. He is the reason I have salvation. He is the reason I have life today. Can you say that today? Does God get all the glory for everything that you have? Can you steal any credit from God? Can you get to the other side and say, yeah, I was 50-50. Yeah, you did, you did most of it, but I, I did a lot too. No. Every single person who understands this will say to God, God, it's all you. It's always been you. I was like Saul of Tarsus before you saved me. I was not a good guy. I was not a guy seeking after your praise and your glory. You did it through me. So Paul says he is the one we praise. He is the one we should bless more than anyone else. And I wish we could linger there even longer, but that's really important to understand what he's about to say. Blessed be God. Blessed be the Lord. Number two, God gave us everything good and spiritual. Listen to what it says in verse four. It says he chose us in him, which means Jesus, 
before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. The first thing God ever said in Genesis, who knows this, that he actually said, who knows that phrase, let there be light. Remember that? Let there be light. The first thing God created, the first thing he said should exist is light. But if we're listening to what Paul is saying, Paul is basically saying, before that even happened, God thought of you. God designed you. Now, I didn't start existing until December 29th, 1979, making me, yes, almost 40. But in the mind of God, you could say it this way, that before he ever said, let there be light, he said, let them have life. That I was before light. You were before light. Because I was before the foundation of the world in the mind of God. Now, is that a wild thought? That before God brought light into the world, I was in his mind. You were in his mind. Before the foundation of the world, God said, I have them in my mind and I have a plan for them. Wow. I mean, I look back and go, man, what was the world like? What was, what was that creation experience like? And I'm in the mind of God even before that happens. And that's a, that's a really wild thought to know. So the amount of God's perfectly orchestrated sovereign will in our lives should astound us. It really should. So I think sometimes we just forget there's a God and we get all anxious and worried about the details of life, not knowing that God is in control. He is in perfect sovereign control. He is orchestrating the details of this world and of our lives to such precision that we can trust him. Because we were thought of way before the foundation of the world. And that's an amazing thing to know. That also means that you and I exist outside of time. Because God exists outside of time. Before time ever began, we existed in the minds of God. That's an amazing thing to know. Which means, according to scripture, it teaches us this all the time, we're eternal. We are eternal beings. We have an eternal soul. God sees us through the scope of eternity. Our souls are eternal in nature, and if we're in Christ Jesus by faith, we are going to live for all of eternity with that God. And I'm waiting for that. I'm thankful for that. But not only were we created by God's hand, listen to what he says, we were chosen specifically to be holy and blameless before him. Now, if you know anything about your sinful, broken heart from nature, you know that that's a really amazing blessing. That God would say about me, about Saul of Tarsus, you are going to be holy and blameless in my eyes. Because I decree it. Because I say so. I want my people like me. That's the way I created them. I created them in my image. I created them like me, to think like me, to love the things that I love. And although sin broke that opportunity, I'm going to restore it. Because I'm God. And because I say so. So God does, and God did, and he made this plan, the gospel that we talk about all the time. He's going to send his son. He's going to redeem mankind. He's going to allow mankind to live for the very purpose they were intended to live, God's glory, to be holy and blameless in his eyes. That's how God created us, and sin broke that opportunity for a while. For a while, we weren't doing that. Is that true? We weren't living for the glory of God. We weren't living for the good things, the proper things of life. But it was God's will that we would be holy and blameless before him. And may it never be said that man, sin, or the devil can thwart the plans of the almighty God. Can't happen. Man, sin, or the devil cannot stand in the way of the almighty God. If God was to have a holy people, 
he will have a holy people. And nothing will break that. Nothing. There's this passage from Matthew 3, 9, um, where the Pharisees are conflicting with Jesus. And they're basically saying to Jesus, Jesus, you can say nothing to us because we are Abraham's children. So we don't have to do anything else. We, we are not bound to God. We can live any way we want, get off our backs. And Jesus said this in Matthew 3, 9. He said, do not presume to say to yourselves that we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to take these stones and raise up children for Abraham. Don't think that God is bound to you. You are bound to God. If God is to have holy, blameless people, he can even take the stones and make people for himself because nothing can thwart the plans of God. If you won't serve God the right way, God can accomplish his will through the stones. If you don't get on track, God will have his plan accomplished, either with you or in spite of you, because God's plan always succeeds. And isn't it comical to think that mere man the puny devil can stand in the way of God and his will. Now, my, my, uh, two, my two twin boys, for whatever reason, are really into tornadoes right now. I don't understand where that started, but they really like tornadoes. They want to watch things about tornadoes. And I'm like, I don't know if that's going to be good for you. But they're really into tornadoes. And I had, I had me thinking about tornadoes the other day. What if, I, what if I simply went up to a tornado and refused to let it destroy my home? No, tornado. Be gone. Is that tornado going to move? Is that tornado going to you know, listen to me and going to bow to me? No. The tornado is going to do what the tornado is designed to do. I cannot stand in the way of the tornado. Okay, I'm a pretty good-sized guy, but me next to a tornado is not a fair fight. I'm going down. Maybe I'm going up. Up and up. But imagine this. How can man or the devil stand up to the Almighty God? They cannot. They cannot. Sin broke the opportunity for us to be holy and blameless before God. Is that the end of the story? Oh, sin wins. The devil wins. No. Because God restored that opportunity through Christ. He sent Jesus at such a high cost so that his will to fix his people would be accomplished. To give us the divine opportunity once again to live for the very reason we were created to live. To be holy and blameless before our God. God will have a holy people. He will have a holy people. And he wants us a part of that plan. And that's an amazing thing to know. And again, like I said before, if we refuse to be holy, if we refuse to be blameless before God, God will find others. And if those people refuse, God may take the stones and make people for himself who are holy and blameless because we cannot and will not thwart the plans of God. And I hope that inspires us to be a part of the plan of God and say to God, God, yes, this is the thing I was designed for. This is the thing you intended for my very body and soul is to live holy and blameless before you. And I want to be a part of that plan, God. I want to be a part of your plan that cannot be thwarted. And right now, it might look like the devil's winning. Look at the world around us. Does it look like it's getting darker? Worse? Does it look like maybe things are going the opposite direction of where God says it would? Do you think God's still going to win? Do you think God is still going to win? He's going to. And it's going to be a landslide victory. Whenever Jesus comes back, God is going to win. Holiness and righteousness and love will win the day. And the devil will once again be defeated. The third thing we look at here from this passage is that God has adopted us as his children. This is a wild thing to know as well. Look at what it says in verses 5 to 6. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ 
according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Because of the great love of God, he designed long before the world ever began that he was going to adopt his wayward children back from the orphanage of sin. Sin was going to take us. Sin was going to steal us. And God designed ever before he said, let there be light, that I'm going to get them back. Sin took us from God from a time, and we were children of the devil. That's what the scripture says. But God loves us, and he's unashamed about that. And he tells us that he wants us to have full confidence that he wanted us back from sin and the devil so he could love us forever. That's why God wants us. He wants to love us forever. It's not just because we're soldiers. It's not just because we're servants. He wants to love us as his children. And that's an amazing thing to know. Who can match the love of our great God? Even when we were in chains and shackles by sin and we didn't even want out. I didn't even want to get out. God came and released those chains and shackles and said, Be free. Come back to me. Live where you belong. So even when we were wicked, ungodly creatures, God wanted us back with him, and he sent Jesus to restore that relationship with him. That really is amazing love. It's amazing grace. God is basically saying to us, I want you, and I proved it. Don't ever doubt the love of God. God said it, he declared it, and he sent his son in order to prove it. I love you. And I'm unashamed of that, that I love my children and I want them with me forever. And I will bend over backwards if necessary to have my children with me forever. And this was God's will. This was God's plan. This was God's purpose. And he accomplished it through his son so that all of us would give the credit to the great grace of God and never pretend to think that my inclusion in the family of God had anything to do with myself making it happen or even desiring that, that, would, that it would happen. God's plan is the one that accomplished this. God's plan to adopt us. So God gets every ounce of credit because God orchestrated it entirely by himself. I didn't even say yes to this. I didn't even have a plan in it. God said, I will love you. I will bring you back. I will adopt you. I will set your feet back on the rock of Jesus Christ. Because it says in Ephesians 2 that we're going to get to here in a little bit, two or three weeks from now, it says we were dead in our sins. Now, how many um, faculties and capacities of reasoning does a dead man have? Uh, none? Zero? I mean, right? I mean, if, if we're dead in our sins, what role did I have in making myself alive spiritually? Well, obviously, the conclusion is zero percent. I had zero percent. God is the one who raised me from the dead, who gave me breath once again and set my feet upon the rock. And he wants us to know those two things. A, it's all his glory, but B, I love you. God wants us to know that we are the object of his love. We are the apple of God's eye. He wants those two things to come together perfectly in my mind. It's all my glory. It's all my will. It's all my plan. I'm the one that did it. Always know that. But I want you to know that I love you. I love you more than any part of creation. I created you more uniquely than anything in the entire world. Do you remember the story of Jonah? We all remember the story of Jonah from our Sunday school days because Jonah was gobbled up by a big fish. And I tell the story to my children all the time. They love it because I spit them out and, you know, on their bed. And it's a big, wild story. But the interesting thing about it, maybe I'll do it sometime with you guys. 
The interesting thing about the story of Jonah is that Jonah is given a command by God to take the gospel message to this town called Nineveh. And Jonah doesn't want to do it because he hates the Ninevites. The Ninevites are wicked, evil, ungodly people. And Jonah wants no part of them coming back to God. He thinks they don't deserve it. They don't belong there. He thinks they should get the penalty for their sin. And so Jonah says, no, I'm not going. And he goes on a boat and he tries to avoid it. And eventually God says, oh, you're going. Remember, you can't thwart the plans of God. You're going to Nineveh. And so Jonah eventually ends up in Nineveh. And in chapter 4, I don't know if you guys have ever read Jonah chapter 4. It kind of, when we tell the story of Jonah, it kind of ends, you know, where he's vomited out of the fish. But in chapter 4, it's this wild scene. Jonah goes into this wilderness. And in this wilderness, he's still angry. He's angry. He went to Nineveh. He told them the message that God wanted him to. They all got saved. They all repented. And Jonah hates that. And so now he's in the wilderness pouting, all mad and angry, going, I hate those Ninevites. <laughs> And so he's there in the wilderness, it's hot, and God has this plant grow above his head, and it gives him shade, and he's temporarily happy by that because he's a little bit cooler. But then God has a little bug crawl up the plant and gobble the plant up, and it eats the whole plant. And now Jonah's mad for two reasons. He hates the Ninevites, and now he's really hot again. And he's basically pouting there, going, man, I I just wish I would die. I just wish this would end. I, I hate my life. I hate my purpose. And God said something unique to Jonah. He said, Jonah... Don't you know what's going on here? You are angry that this plant went away, that you didn't create, that you didn't design, that you had for a short time. It was there. It provided you shade. A bug came and ate it, and now you're really angry that a plant that you didn't create got destroyed. And he's basically saying to Jonah, Jonah, I created the Ninevites. They went wayward, and I was sad by that. (coughs) I created them. I was angry because they had gone astray, and I wanted them back. Shouldn't I have my people back, Jonah? And it never tells us Jonah's response to that, but I have to imagine maybe a light bulb came on over his head because he's basically saying to Jonah, Jonah, they're my people. I created the Ninevites. They're mine. I designed them. I want them back, and I should be able to have them back. And he's saying that to all of us today. I want you back. I want you back, and I'm unashamed of that. I want you as my children because that's exactly where you belong. And God created us, like I said, more uniquely than anything in the universe. We're more special than the animals. We're more unique than the plants and the trees and the rainforests and the mountains, the sun and the solar system, even the universe. The scientists said, and this is all over science reports and things like that, that the mind, the one human mind, is more complex than the entire universe. Even scientists say that, that one human mind is more complex than the entire universe. Do you see God's design upon us? Do you see why God might want us back with him? Because God's put such special care into designing us. He loves us. He loves us. He's unashamed that he loves us. He wants us to know that we have his great love forever if we want it. And therefore, no one besides mankind should know the love of God quite like you and I do. No one besides his children should know the love of God quite like we do. Because without God's love, we are dead and we are ruined. Do we know that? Without God's love, where are we today? Where are we today? A really bad place. And even the angels don't know the love and grace of God like we do because we depend upon it every hour of our lives. No one should love God more than us. Is that true? Because we have received the most love from God. And one day we will give all praise to the glorious grace of God because we will know 
exactly how much we owe him for everything good in our lives. One day, the light bulb that went over Jonah's head will go over above our head and say, I get it now, Lord. I get it. You gave me everything. You did everything. You protected me. You provided for me. You brought me back. You restored me. You forgave me. You chastised me. Whatever I needed, whenever I needed it, you gave it to me, God. And the reason I stand before you today in righteousness is because of your great love. Where would we be without the steadfast, faithful love of God? Where would we be without his daily protection and his provisions? God is the best father imaginable. I don't care if you have a good or a bad earthly dad. You have the greatest heavenly father if you're in Jesus, and that's all you need. We can't duplicate this love. We can't replicate this love, and we can't do without this love. I promise you we cannot. We need you, God. We need you. The last thing we'll look at is what Paul calls redemption, forgiveness, and God's will. Listen to verses 7 to 10. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. God has accomplished everything good in us through Jesus. 100%. Everything God has given to us, everything God has accomplished in and through us, has been accomplished through Jesus. Jesus is the one who made it possible for God to love us the way that God desired to love us. Without Jesus, there's no way for us to be loved by God. Because God is holy, God is righteous, and we were wicked. Jesus is the fountain of every blessing from God. And we've said that before, but we need to shout that from the hilltops. It's always been Jesus. It will always be Jesus. We find here that through Christ, through Christ, let that resound in your mind. Through Christ, we have redemption. We have forgiveness of our sins. Do you love Jesus? Are you thankful for Jesus? Without Jesus, there is no redemption. Without Jesus, our sins are our own. But because of Jesus... He washed them whiter than snow. Without Jesus, there are no blessings coming to us from God. But with Jesus, we get everything. We get everything. Have we become cold to the fact that God redeemed us after we rebelled from him? See, God wasn't the problem. I was the problem. You were the problem. I turned my back on God. God did not turn his back on me. I'm the one that left. I'm the one that said no to God. And he redeemed me anyways. We lived a lifestyle of hostility and hatred towards God, and yet he forgave every one of our sins as if we never committed them. Because Jesus paid for them. And the reason he could accomplish this is because Jesus submitted himself to the will of God by dying on the cross and paying for our sins. And you've heard the phrase around Christmas, right? Jesus is the reason for the season. Jesus is the reason for everything good. Everything good that ever comes to you in the history of time, it's all to the credit of the Lord Jesus Christ.
and we will praise him for the rest of eternity because that's how long it's going to take. For the first time, we encounter the word riches here in Ephesians, and it's referring to the grace of God. The grace of God that we sing about, this amazing grace. God's grace has the power to make us wealthy beyond calculation if we, if we use that grace properly. Because we are going to be rich forever in Jesus Christ. Wanting riches is not a bad thing. Wanting riches is not a bad thing. God's word tells us all the time, I have riches for you. The only problem is we stop short of physical earthly riches. And he's like, no, that's not the riches I'm talking about. I have real, eternal riches for you. And they're all in my son. They're all through my grace. And if you find these riches, you will be rich forevermore and they will never fade. They will never spoil. No one can ever steal them from you. And God could have given us a fraction of this grace. And that fraction of that grace would have made us incredibly wealthy. But you know what he did instead? He decided to lavish his grace upon us. And you know what the word lavish means? To bestow something in generous or extravagant quantities. God's grace was given to us lavishly. Bestowed upon us in generous generous or extravagant quantities. I want you to picture like Psalm 23 when David says, my cup runneth over. I want you to picture taking the cup of your life up to God and saying, God, would you fill this for me, please? Can I have a little bit of your grace? Just a little bit of grace, God, would go a long way. Here's my cup. Give me whatever you can need. God takes out the hammer and busts the dam of his grace. And is your cup filled? Of course it's filled. David said, my cup runs over. I can't hold it all. That's the grace of God. That's the grace of God. He doesn't give us a fraction of it. He doesn't give us a little sampling of it like you go to Sam's Club. He unleashes the truck, the dam of his grace. And it, it's so big, it spills out of my cup into the lives around me because it's that big. That's the grace of God. That's the grace that can make us rich forevermore. And knowing that his grace is the very tool can make us something completely godly and otherworldly. And, and God knows that. If you have my grace, if you understand what my grace is able to do, you are going to be godly and otherworldly. People are going to look at you as if you're an alien or a stranger. And you're going to bear fruit for God. Like he said in John 15, remember, I want fruit from your lives and fruits of, act, uh, fruits of obedience and righteousness and holiness. I want those fruits from your lives and my grace has the power to accomplish it. So God was willing to bestow his grace in abundance toward his people in hopes that we would use that grace to accomplish his will, to bear him fruit of love, obedience, and righteousness. And the grace of God given to man and used for pleasing God is what Paul is calling here the riches of his grace. The riches of his grace. One day, the only treasures that are going to matter, guys, are the, are the ones that come from God's grace. It's not going to matter how rich you were. It doesn't going to matter how big your house was, how big your car was, how nice your neighborhood was, how many toys you had. It's not going to matter. Because everything stops at eternity. Everything is brand new at eternity. Whatever you had, it's in the past. And whatever you have going forward, you have for the rest of time. Do you think you're going to want the grace of God then? You are. And right now you can have it through Jesus if you will believe. God's grace works practically, Paul tells us, through the teaching of the mystery of God's will. The word mystery is in there. The mystery of God's will, which means common man cannot understand God's will. 
on their own. You go to school, you understand God's will. No. You get a degree, you understand God's will. You get a PhD, you will understand God's will. No, you won't. You will only know God's will by him revealing it to you through his grace. And if you know the will of God, you have God to thank for that. Because it's a mystery. It's raveled up. It's, it's supposed to be hard to un- uncover and undiscover. Without Christ, you can't do it. But we have been given to it from God. And those who have been touched by God's grace see the plan of God unfolding in their lives through these three things. Number one, our salvation. The grace of God is the tool that was given to us to bring us out of our chains of sin and death. I don't take credit for that. I don't take credit for it. I don't even want to get out of those chains of sin and death. I owe it all to the grace of God, and I know that. I know that because I experienced that. Number two, we see the grace of God unfolding through our conformity to Jesus Christ and how we live. That grace teaches us. That grace empowers us to do something I cannot do otherwise because God's will is hard to understand if I don't have God's grace. God's, God's will is hard to accomplish if I don't have God's grace. But I do have God's grace, which means I can accomplish it. I can become made like his son, Jesus. And number three, that grace gives us confidence and hope on the other side. And I know, like me, you would love to stand before Judgment Day in confidence, wouldn't you? Because God is the seer of all things. He's the knower of all things. And on Judgment Day, he has the keys to death and Hades. But if we're in Christ... If we're in Christ, we should be confident. Confident that we will stand before God and he will say, your sins have been paid for. You are holy and blameless in my eyes. I loved you from the beginning of the foundation of the world. Come into your kingdom that I prepared for you. Are you saved today? Are you saved by the grace of God today? Have you experienced the grace of God today? Are you becoming like Jesus Because of the grace of God. Are you confident about Judgment Day because of the grace of God? If so, you owe every part of your life to God. Paul says that this grace unites everything together in Christ, whether on earth or in heaven, Jew or Gentile, mankind or heavenly being. God's grace through Christ is the great equalizer. All of us, no matter where we are, no matter where we're from, will have what we have because of Jesus Christ. And none of us can stake any other claim except the value, beauty, and love of our Lord Jesus. And every single creature in eternity will say the same thing. To God be the glory. And this is precisely why we need in eternity to praise our Lord for all he's done. Jesus is the fountain of every eternal spiritual blessing. So what do we gain? What do we gain from this letter? I hope these three things, like we've said before us today. Number one, God is good. God is God. God is on his throne and is sovereignly ordained that his glory is made known through his steadfast love and the holiness of his people. Because holiness and love represent God properly. That's why we need to live holy. That's why we need to be about love. Because it represents our God, and that's a good thing. When people can look at our lives and go, what? I don't get it. Why are you like this? And we say it's all to God's credit and glory. That's it. That's the whole plan of God right there. And he loves us, and he doesn't want us questioning that love. He has lavished his grace upon us when we were the most unlovable we could ever be. And now that we're redeemed and righteous in God's eyes, we can radically trust his love. Amen? Radically trust the love of God. 
because he loved us when we were steeped in sinfulness. And now that we're righteous in his eyes, he wants us to never doubt that love, always bank on that love for the rest of time. Number two, we need to know for sure that we belong to God through Jesus Christ because this is the whole point. If you don't have a relationship with Christ, all of this is moot to you. All of it doesn't matter. None of it is yours. But if you have faith in Christ, and that is proven and tested in your life, every promise God has given you is yes and amen to you. Yes, it's yours. Yes, believe it. Yes, trust in it. Yes, depend upon it. If you have faith in Christ, it's all yours. Make yourselves at home. But you must have faith in Christ. You must. Every single person who wants these blessings has to have faith in Christ. Without casting our entire selves upon Christ, without surrendering our entire lives to him, and without seeing the fruits of obedience that come from following Jesus Christ, we cannot have proof. The Ephesians had this proof. Paul knew it. He heard the reports. He saw the fruit that was coming from the Ephesians. Therefore, he said, all of these promises, Ephesians, are yours. Can he say that about us today? Do we have faith in Christ and do we have the fruits that authenticate that faith in Christ? Because that's the whole point. God wants us to belong with him forever, but we have to listen to his word. He knows what he's talking about. Number three, God's love and riches are given to us for two very powerful purposes. Okay? His love and his riches that are ours, if we're in Christ, are given to us for two very powerful things. Number one, so we would have joy and confidence about life with God. Do you think people need joy and confidence today? Do you think those are important things for people to have in their soul? If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, God wants you confident and joyful at all times. And if Satan ever tries to steal your confidence and steal your joy, tell him about Jesus. He's the reason I have this confidence. He's the reason I have this joy. He's the reason God has loved me. God should be feared. God is one to be feared, but he's never to be feared in a way that keeps us from him. We should always fear God in a way that draws us to him. Because with God is the safest place imaginable. One of the greatest gospel terms I've ever discovered in scripture is called reconciliation. Do you know what that word means? God wants us back with him. That's the entire purpose of the gospel, which means I'm not saved from God. I'm saved to God. God is the safest place to be. Everywhere else is scary. Draw unto God. That's number, that's number one reason, so we have confidence and joy. Number two reason is so we will be compelled to love God through Jesus. Because that's how he loves us, through Jesus. Do you want to love God? Give everything to Jesus then. Everything. And you will love God. God will find an enormous amount of glory from that. If you want to love God, surrender your entire life to Jesus. And God will be praised, God will be loved, God will be worshipped for all time. And God wants and deserves that love, doesn't he? And Paul is a, is a character that I believe experienced such grace in his life, such mercy, such love. You know what Paul said about himself? You know what he declared himself as? If he would have had a, a, bio, a bio about himself on Twitter or Instagram, you know what he would say? Bond slave of Jesus. Bond slave of Jesus. Jesus makes the rules. Wherever he goes, I go. Whatever he says, I do. Wherever he takes me, I go there as long as he's there with me. I'm a bond slave of Jesus Christ. Why did Paul say that? 
because he had experienced the lavished grace of God. And he said, I don't want to go anywhere else. Wherever Jesus is, I'm going there. Whatever he commands me to do, I'm going to do it because I believe he is the best thing. So the questions for us today, very quickly. Are we, are you, practically giving God the glory for everything good in your life? Are you? Do people hear about that? Do people hear about the goodness and love and glory of God in your life? Do you sing God's praises to other people? Do you sing God's praises in prayer? God, giving God glory is the highest purpose imaginable. Number two, are you sure you belong to Jesus Christ? That has to be known, guys. That can't be chalked up to a guess. You have to know that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And you can test that by the way that you live, by the joy that you have, by the confidence that you have in God, by the fruits that you bear from your life. You can know if you have faith in Christ. And we can, t we can test that by obedience to his commandment. Are you obedient to Jesus Christ today? Number three, are you confident in producing the joy of life with God? Because God wants us confident. He doesn't want a shaky and frail and timid people. He wants us confident, bold, courageous. All the apostles were. They stood in the face of evil and, and continued teaching people about Jesus Christ. Remember the stories in the Old Testament about Daniel in the lion's den? That might have been scary. What about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace? That might have made you quake a little bit. But no, not these guys. No. I, I tell the story of, of this to my children as well. King Nebuchadnezzar said, listen, bow down to my stature. I'm going to throw you in the furnace. And these guys basically said to him, you can give us a thousand chances. Or ain't bound down to your statue. And he, he got so angry. He's like, make the furnace seven times hotter. Throw him in the furnace. And these guys are like, whatevs. <laughs> okay. These guys were confident and bold and courageous because they knew their God. Who is man compared to God? Who is man compared to God? If I have God on my team, I'm good. It's all that matters. Do you need to rekindle the joy you had at first when you trusted in Jesus? Do you need that joy again? Do you need that confidence once again? If you need it, simply look to Jesus and you will find it. Number four, are you loving God above all through Jesus? Because God's love was given to us in abundance. It was lavished upon us, this grace. But hopefully so that we make the obvious choice to love God above all. That's the greatest commandment ever given to man. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Does that seem like a burden or does that seem obvious? Obvious, right? After everything you understand about God, why would we not love God? God? Why would I not spend most of my time with God? Why would I go anywhere else? Who can love me like my God? And our Lord Jesus, into eternity, is going to wear the scars of his love. We're going to be able to see the scars in his hands and his feet. And we're always going to know he loves me. And he proved it. Can we bear those scars for Jesus today? I love him. And I have the scars to prove it. So are you an heir of the riches of God through faith in Jesus? If not, you have one simple thing you need to do. Turn to Jesus. Turn to Jesus. Why put it off? Why delay? If these riches are yours and these promises are yes and amen for every single person who has faith in Christ, why would you be kept from this? Turn to Jesus and find God's lavished grace, God's abundant love for the rest of time. And if you are, be confident, be courageous, and love God recklessly. 
Jesus is worthy of our life and our devotion. And I hope you would say yes and amen to that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opening letter from Ephesians. I hope this is a tremendous book, one that gives us confidence and courage and maybe awakens something inside of us that isn't there yet, Father, to, to remember what we have in Christ. Remember what we have from you. Remember that you are the sole reason we have anything good in our lives. Father, teach us that time and time again so we can be courageous, so we can be joyful, and so we can be loving you with every aspect of our lives. And one day, that's all that's going to matter. When we stand before you, when we stand before Jesus, when we see his scars, did I love my Lord? Father, thank you for this opportunity. Take us where we aren't yet, for your sake, for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.